0: I'm Al Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities. And we hope game for some poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners, because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our pensoundarchivewriting.upenn.edu. Slash... Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writer's House in our Wexler studio by Stephen Metcalf, critic at large at Slate, whose beautifully written essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Observer, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, and pretty much anything else that has New York in front of it, lots of other New York Magazine titles, Steve, and some others, who resides in the beautiful, beautiful Hudson Valley who is finishing a book about the 1980s, which is really not a way of explaining what it's about, but that's a shorthand, whose Wikipedia page entry picture, as I recently observed, is a photograph of him presenting in our arts cafe here at the Kelly Writers House, where indeed he has hosted discussions with great prose writers at least once per year, more typically twice for some years now, and who since 2007 or 8, which is it, Steve? 2007 has been the host of... The much, much admired weekly slate podcast
1: called The Culture Gap Fest. It's 2007, Steve? I, I'm going to have to throw that one to June Thomas.
2: I would I would guess possibly 2006.
1: Yeah, one, making it really
0: one of the earliest sort so, of... Yeah, so early. Mm. And it's a lot of years later. And by Jess Schollenberger, a doctoral student here at Penn, whose work combines queer studies, everyday life studies and 20th Century U.S. Literature, who for 2019-20 is the inaugural Kelly Writers House Poetic Practice Fellow here and is a teaching assistant with me and others in the free, non-credit, open online course about modern and contemporary poetry called Mod Poe. And by June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts, co-host of Slate's show on gender, relationships, and feminism, The Waves, longtime editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ section, self-described TV obsessive, who says she manages to combine my love of, I think my script says love of the gays.
2: (laughs) I may have said that. I may have said that.
0: It might be just love of gays. I don't know what it says. Anyway, G-A-Z-E is good enough. And my love of television by being a major expert on every show that's ever had a gay character. Wow. Unquote. Whose pieces have included? And I'm going a little back here. The homos behind ask a homo. Why do lesbians love flannel? And no, same-sex couples are definitely not allowed in Olympics pairs skating. I went back a little ways for that. <laughs> June, it is. I'm a fanboy. This is. <laughs> I, I we haven't met before. I'm. You, your voice has been in my ear,
2: and yours in mine now.
0: Oh, <laughs> how could that possibly be? Anyway you're here.
2: Thank you for having me. Very yeah.
0: exciting. First impression? Amazing. June sat in on the uh, end of our class, so she got oh, to yeah.
1: see the students. Steve! Ow. Hey, <laughs> how are you? I'm uh, flustered, but um, but settling in. Flustered by the transportation? Yeah, I was on the West Coast, as June knows, for our, our show doing live shows, and and right. my jet lag. Like it's almost like the shorter distance I go, the longer the jet lag lasts, or something, or more I need to like. So am, maybe you should go to Japan up, and you'll be fine. Exactly, exactly. It's but good I'm having jet lag from my Amtrak trip down from New York well, City you this morning. You look really
0: great, and you look like youthful and healthy, and
1: maybe travel <laughs> is good for you. <laughs> you. You butter me up right before you throw me in the firing. I know in exactly. the frying pan Talk outliner. about this
0: line, Steve. You know, yeah. Jess, hey, Al. It's really great to see you. And I think this is your first time on Poem Talk.
3: It is my first time on Poem Talk. And I just
0: want to say for anybody who's listening to this ever at any point and those who are in the room hearing me now, that it is just such a great pleasure and privilege and honor to work with you on Modpo. You're so good. And everybody's just excited about what you have to say. Thanks, Al. Not to raise the stakes too high. Well, today the four of us have gathered here to talk about two poems by Eileen Miles. The first is called Writing, and the second is Mount St. Helens. And they appeared in Miles' book of 2001, Skies, and both were included by Miles in their volume of selected poems, I Must Be Living Twice. Miles' pen page includes several performances of these poems, including a terrific reading of writing here at the Writer's House when they were a Writer's House fellow in 2016. The recordings we'll hear were made during an episode of Charles Bernstein's interview series, Close Listening, in March of 2009. So here now is Eileen Miles reading writing and Mount St. Helens.
4: Writing. I can connect any two things. That's God. Teeny piece of Band-Aid, little folded piece of Band-Aid. I ran to the bathroom to see my face. Sometimes I don't want to see my face in the mirror. Sometimes I can't bear my thoughts. Sometimes I can't do anything. But that's okay. Band-Aid, book, God. That's right. Mount St. Helens. Joel Colton died right here. He was a poet. He visited me once in his car with a Polaroid camera. I got it somewhere. Portrait of Eileen by Joel Colton. I know I've got a picture of him. And you can see the landscape traveling by with some poets in their 20s. When I knew Joel Colton, I was younger then. It's a story, said Juliet. Yeah, all that lava. I don't think of him, but I use his lines all the time. I had this poem on my wall for a year. See, they get born on the left, I tell my class. It's it's a spine. I mean Joel Colton's. A snap of his nerves heading right. The infinity of his line. Born, die. Every time the gesture is complete. Joel Colton, he died here.
0: June in writing, there's a moment where the speaker, uh, we can just say Miles, but it doesn't matter really. Um, goes to the goes to the mirror. Mm. What do you think? We don't, you know, it's a poem, not a short story. But if you were to write a short story, what's what's the story there? Why does this person need to go to the mirror?
2: Well, I, to me, I need to know what came before because there is this progression from things that we all turn away from. We all use Band-Aids at some point, and yet you never want to see even your own Band-Aid, but you never want to see anybody else's Band-Aid. It's, or if you do see it, you pretend that you don't. And and I think that that then is in such a contrast with running to the bathroom because, again, like that's for your own business. That's for your private stuff. It's a private place. Um, and then to kind of move on from there.
0: Uh, <laughs> Let the Steve record show hands- that Steve just – Pull out a ratty old Band-Aid. It's
1: Wait, it's not, it's not a used Band-Aid, though. Yes. It's, still, yeah, it's still, ratty. still in its wrap-up. Yeah. And why did you do that, Steve? You trying to Theater. throw June Theater. off her <laughs> game? No, I'm trying to, you know, be the amen corner over it's here. It's living okay. poetry. Jess, what's happening there?
0: I'm, I'm, really, I'm really intrigued by what June just said. Um, th- you know, it begins with such confidence yeah, but then run to the mirror is usually June. I think you're implying <laughs> like oh what, yeah, What did I say?
2: You said run to the mirror, but yeah,
0: run to the bathroom. But it usually implies like <laughs> oh, what's wrong with me? What do I look like? Who am I? What? What?
3: Yeah, it's it's striking to me too um, that the poem begins with I can, and I think there's a kind of immediacy to this poem. It brings you right into Miles's world. Like, this is my world. Let me show you what I can do. I can do this thing. And so it begins with confidence, but...
0: And what is the realm in which this person can do things confidently? Writing. Writing. Yeah. And what is, Steve, what is, I can connect two things, any two things have to do with writing, and poetry in particular, I guess.
1: Well, I I think it's, what I thought was really interesting about that gambit and that boast is that it it, it combines the confidence of someone who knows they can do a parlor trick. Like, tell me any two things. I can connect them. I it's can like make a, a poem. It's like a Kevin Bacon game, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And clearly the challenge is to make them unlikely in their connection. But right. since somehow this is a unified or sing, single world, right. um, they can be connected. So it's a parlor trick crossed with a kind of vatic or, or almost like prophetic power of insight. Right It's the discernment of God in the connection of any two things that are occupying the same world that the poet is somehow in a privileged position to um connect um, creator of the relationship of any two things in the world that was created, yeah, exactly,
0: and that Which their is essences, great concept of poetry, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly they their kind of essences created things can be brought to the surface, regardless of how trivial or kind of gross they are to June Thomas. <laughs> And then, June, uh, one thing I really like
0: about Eileen Miles, and it's almost in every poem, is we go from that to this self-check, self-effacement, identity check, uh, and what is that? If, I can, if I'm if i really good at, a, at making poems, am I good at anything else, and how do I look?
2: It's all very well to, to begin by saying, I can connect any two things. I can do anything. And then... You know, is to to kind of go into the realm of cliché, is there anything more fabulous than having written and anything more awful than writing? And so, I to me, this, this kind of escalation of sometimes I don't want to see my face in the mirror, sometimes I can't bear my thoughts, sometimes I can't do anything, is more, to me, that feels like the feeling when you're, oh, God, will this ever become anything? Will this will this ever leave my brain and will anybody read this and not think that I'm an idiot and should be fired? Like, will this become anything that's worthwhile? Like, that's the process of, you know, like, shoving it out into the world, making it into something.
0: And making a poem about that very thing. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: So it's a meta poem, Jess. It's a poem about writing, a poem about poetry. Of all the poems I'm interested in are. <laughs> and Mount St. Helens probably is one also, but a little less obviously. But what June just said is, you know, uh, Eileen we're, we're, Miles is going to go through this every time she produces something, even though she knows she can connect any two things. Then there's this like, oh, my God, can I actually make that? Can I really make that into a poem? And that's a poem. Is it? Can it be?
3: Yeah. I mean, connecting things is an act of desire, and it's potentially a sort of um, world-shifting act. I mean, I think Eileen would say that, you know, words are, words are sacred, right? So putting two words together, especially—or two things, right? Things, everything, but words, right? Putting two words together, especially words that don't typically go together or are seen as being unconnectable, yeah, that's a powerful act, it's a powerful act. Um, and Miles is a queer poet, you know, so that act of, that that moment of, of confronting the reflection in the mirror is particularly fraught in this instance.
0: Can you say a little more about that?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, it's a poem about writing and, and the sacredness of writing, and Miles is announcing that they can do this thing, but they're also announcing that they feel bad, even in spite of being able to do this thing, Um, when they look in the mirror. And sometimes they don't want to look in the mirror, and they can't bear their thoughts because looking in the mirror, as as June said, it's not a confrontation with the the truth of oneself, necessarily. It's a confrontation with yourself in relation to a world that might not understand what you have to say.
0: So, Steve, it's possible to think of this poem as having three moments, three phases. One is... That confident gambit that you that you describe. The second is that moment of check and doubt, and then the third is but, mm-hmm. and it ends with not that's God, but that's right. <laughs> so let's talk about the third. Is this a consolation?
1: Like, is this a dialectic? Uh, can I push you back to the second for one second? Sure. Um, is it? Am I right, or is one possible interpretation of this poem and the way that it unfolds folds almost as a scene or a drama that the gambit is made uh it's linked to something almost religious in its power and then she invokes this teeny piece of band-aid and then instead of coming up with a second thing she repeats the existence of the Band-Aid, Because right? another way to think about a poet's unique power isn't just the ability to produce a poem, but the ability to produce metaphor and the essence of metaphor, are taking two things that are not alike and showing how, in fact, they are implicitly or deeply alike. And instead of doing that, she's not metaphor producing in this poem. She's looking at a Band-Aid. She says she's going to come up with a second thing, doesn't, comes up with the Band-Aid again. So suddenly we're in the thingliness of the thing realm, and then she totally loses her nerve and runs to the bathroom. Am I on the <laughs> same bit? Am yeah, I filibustering You are, now? I think. You're not filibustering. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to, my my reading of the poem is right. that the band, so the, the repetition of the band is. turns into one
0: thing, said right. twice. We got teeny added. But, you know, where do we get to in the end? Because she sti- it's a meta poem, so she doesn't have to produce the two things. She can <laughs> say she, in other poems, can do the two things. But here, this is a poem about writing mm. where the second thing doesn't emerge yet. And she adds it at the end. What is it, June? She does. We do get the second thing. Book. Yeah. And where does that come from?
2: Well, that is from our knowledge that if you are so confident that you can take a band-aid, the most repulsive thing we can think of. Yeah. <laughs> a nothing thing. Yeah. And we can, we can invoke God and then... Oh, book that's the thing that comes out of that and to me like this whole especially when you hear them reading it bandaid, book god that's right like there's there's kind of a trying right, it got it yeah i like, did it i
0: did yeah, what i said i could do yeah
2: yeah i think so yeah. and i th- and i think i like that trying it out like come on can i get away with this yeah. i think there is a bit of like really i'm i'm going to go for it let me know can i land this yeah, yeah that's right and, and they do
0: I mean, I feel a tiny bit of literary history coming on, and I apologize in advance. (laughs) Do you need a Tums? But but we go, you better put the Band-Aid on. I mean, we'll go to Mount St. Helens, which is really an amazing poem. Um, You know, Eileen comes from Boston to New York, and she falls in with the New York School. And the New York School was kind of dominated by the image of Frank O'Hara going to parties, being great at parties. I'll write a poem right now about this. Give me... Tell me a couple of things. I'll write a poem, you know, kind of parlor trick. O'Hara's in the party space, the social space, and there's never any doubt anywhere. But I'm going to run into the bathroom <laughs> see what see what's going on. And I think this is a more humane New York school style because it has that moment of I do the parlor trick. I'm really good at it, but uh, it's we can't just do that. It's got to be more. I think we should come back uh, at the end, after Mount St. Helens, and try to read the end again, the that's right, because, um, you know, God's God's there and all's right with the world. It's not, it's not a theological poem. It's a poem about the, what Wallace Stevens would call the supreme fiction. That's what poetry is, you know, uh, what you just described, Steve, you know, take any two things, put them together, and what a miracle that is, and that's writing. But it's also what's right, you know, what's right with the world.
1: Let's let's go to Mount St Helens. Can, can I ask a very quick question? Did you purposely pick a poem that would uh force June Thomas to say the word book? <laughs> yeah, you know, I know I've been listening to the, to to your
0: various podcasts and it's it's my favorite word. Yes. <laughs> can you say it again, June, cuz I'm getting excited? Bandit, Book. <laughs> book. <God. laughs> book. Uh, Mount St. Helens. So, Joel Colton is, uh, has almost, no, it's not a friend, just somebody in the poetry world, right? But it's an elegy. I think it's an elegy.
2: Except that the poem is called Mount St. Helens, and even though his name is the first thing that we hear, it's not, I'm thinking about Joel Colton. It's, I'm at Mount St. Helens,
0: hey, didn't a poet die here? Um, Like, the the place comes first, not the poem, mm. and that's what she says in the introduction, which is not that clear in the recording, because somebody summarized what happened? What does Eileen say? Does anybody remember?
3: Well, I think they say that they sort of knew Joel vaguely mm-hmm. and that in the poetry he, scene in the poetry scene, his work was published in Philadelphia an guy. yeah, he was born in philly, uh, and he he was he died in the nineteen eighty eruption of. Yeah,
0: so this is some kind of, I mean, June's comment really helps here, some kind of memorialization. It is something of an elegy, but it's so much more. Okay, start us off, Steve. What else is it more of? It's not just about this guy who died. Well, I'm
1: tempted to say metapoem, but...
2: (laughs) I think so. I think so. Uh, Let's go
1: right there. Why not? Go ahead. Uh, Can I start? Are you mocking me? (laughs) Lovingly. It's um, totally a metapoem. Uh, I'm ready to do battle if you don't think <laughs> I, of well, you're a sprung trap when it comes to metapoetry, <laughs> but, Um I just wanted to point to the line. Um I don't think of him. I mean, as an elegy, yes. that's a very peculiar sentiment to say that you don't think of the person. I don't think of him, but I use mm-hmm. it's not even that the lines are so powerful or or abiding that they recur to her, you know. I use uh his lines all the time. Where does uh, Eileen use the Sounds like a classroom situation, yeah. yeah. So Eileen teaches Joel Colton's
0: poems. Eileen uses lines all the time. Why would you use
1: lines in a classroom on po- about poetry? Lines not poems. Yeah. Well, she makes a big deal about it being read left to right, <laughs> yep, and being spinal. And is this poem that too? Yeah, exactly.
0: Meta poem. <laughs> it's a total <laughs> You method- led me right into it. <laughs>
1: Snap the trap. <laughs> that <laughs> not like that cool though?
0: I had this poem on my wall for a year. See, they, they is lines. The lines. lines. They get born on the left. I tell my class, every time you write a line, class, it dies at the end. And his lines were short and my lines are short. So let's try to imagine what the teaching is. I mean one lesson is metaphorically uh you you get every time you have a new line you get born and every time a line ends you die that's kind of elegiac about the line at the level of the line
3: I don't know I mean I think the whole poem is full of ambiguity and th- everything is scattered even the here which as June pointed to, is both definite in the sense that it's Mount St. Helens, a definite place, but it's...
0: Where I was when I wrote this poem or thought of this poem, but also here has to be Joel is in this picture, but also Joel is in these lines, and, but also Joel is in this line, you, here in yes, the poem. Yeah.
3: Yes, there are A at lot of least here going four. on. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's... Uh, I'm kind of dodging your question about the classroom because I'm not sure, and it's very... It's a, it's a speculative... Why is the word
0: spine used?
3: Visually, it yeah. looks like a spine. That the
2: lines are
0: right. And short, we have a snapping short-lived. of the nerves. I mean, see,
2: that's the thing actually that I find most, both kind of shocking and and visceral about the poem, but also honestly the most confusing. Um, maybe like especially because the line before a spine is has that hesitation. It's mm-hmm. it's a spine. I mean, that's a funny thing to to memorialize that you know, line there's two words in it it's, yeah, it's we all hesitate but you don't have to put you don't have to print that in the book um, so so that's the thing that I, that that kind of throws me it's it's a spine I mean and then to, to go on Joel Colton's a snap of his nerves so Joel Colton's spine and um, I mean in both senses of the spine of his poem and and his spine um, because I think my understanding of Mount St. Helens is that it, everybody died suddenly. Like, they were just there, and the volcano erupted, and they just—like, it wasn't—I don't think people were actually going in, you know, to put themselves in danger. Like, that shit just happened. Mm. And, you know, you're alive, and then you're dead.
1: I, like June, am fixated on that It's It because it brings together the sort of spoken word bravado that mm-hmm. both of these poems mm-hmm. have, and I th- think is maybe— possibly characteristic of Miles' work to the extent that I'm familiar with their work. Um, and um, and it, it draws this amazing contrast between the present and the absent, right? You think of it as speech, you think of the person as present. Um, you realize it is a poetic line and a composed poetic line and therefore the poet is absent. Um, so, um, and then nerves and snapping nerves, I mean, a spine... I mean, I don't want to overread the poem, but a spine—the nerves—spoke out from the spine and send their signals to the spine, right? I mean, is that how anatomy
2: works? The human body right? is how, a mystery. To me. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I mean, think
0: we can stipulate that Eileen knows nothing about how <laughs> Joel, Joel Colton actually died. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, but yeah. what we do know, what Eileen does know, is that the poems are spiny, or or anyway theirs are spiny. Eileen's. Uh, And that a book has a spine. (laughs) And if we connect both of these poems, we get the godliness of, you know, I mean, Jess, being, you know, inundated by lava and dying, a poet dying on Mount St. Helens is this. One one here is an act of God in there somewhere. (laughs) And I think that Eileen is really getting good. At understanding what that is and what the poet's role is in relation to it. Anyway, go anywhere you want with that. Mm.
3: Yeah, I I was thinking that in addition to being an elegy, this is perhaps like Eileen meditating on their own mortality or on their having like lived past 30, unlike Joel Colton. Because Eileen Miles's, you know, youth or whatever was bumpy you know to say the least least, right and like you know again the, the beginning Joel Colton died right here um here in the poem where Miles is alive and doing their work and doing the work that Joel was doing but can't do anymore and you know for them to be teaching the work you know it's yeah I mean I think maybe that's part of the hesitation with the it's too Right, the the dual. It's it's Joel, it's Eileen teaching Joel. It's the line. It's the line living
2: on, and and persisting with poetry too. I think you know that. I mean, I have to imagine that the easiest thing in the world is to be an ex-poet. I mean, it's it's a young person's. You know, there are many more young poets than old poets, and Joel Colton will always be a young poet, I guess. And Eileen Miles is now. An old poet, and that's awesome, and a professor, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, although then, I mean, again, I'm obsessed again with that. It's because I tell my class, and then the thing that comes after that, the thing they're going to tell their classes, it's it's like, well, that's not very professorial. Not the most
0: articulate uh, yeah. professor, but uh, June, uh, it's it's a spine. I mean, Joel Colton's that it's Eileen's, and not jo- I mean oh. Joel Colton's, not my yeah. not 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 the spines of my lines, or not my spine. Yeah.
2: Except that we are talking, like, Eileen Miles is talking mm-hmm. about Joel Colton, but they're really talking about themselves. Oh, Their lines totally. survive, um, you know.
0: Right. But every time you start a line, let's go back to writing, every time you start a line on the left, you could die by the end. It's, the whole thing could be over. Run to the bathroom, check the Band-Aid.
4: Whoa, there's precarity everywhere. I can connect any two things. That's God teeny piece of Band-Aid, little folded piece of Band-Aid. I ran to the bathroom to see my face. Sometimes I don't want to see my face in the mirror. Sometimes I can't bear my thoughts. Sometimes I can't do anything. But that's okay. Band-Aid, book, God. That's right.
2: So I was very anxious about doing this. I was like, oh, I don't know anything about you poems. You mean poem talk? Yeah. So I was, I was at, a, at a conference. I was in a place, and I ran into a, you know, was introduced to a stranger who it transpired was a poet. And I said, oh, I've got to talk about a poem. Oh. And they were like, oh, what is it? And I said, it's, they're by Eileen Miles. And this poet said,
4: oh, they're
2: famous. Mm, because, yeah. you know, they they got a famous girlfriend. And, well, they broke up, I said. But, like. You should
0: explain that reference. Yeah,
2: so Eileen Miles was dated Jill Soloway, you know, who made Transparent, that Jill Soloway's not. And there's just, an
0: Eileen Miles character right, in. Right. The...
2: There's, and there's, Cherry Jones. Cherry Jones plays a character very much based on Eileen Miles, and also Eileen Miles' poetry was used in Transparent, which, you know, was not probably seen by gigantic number of people, but won awards. And to me, even though this was written before any of that happened and before Eileen Miles would have ever had any consciousness that at one point they may have reached a different level of fame or you know exposure but it's the same thing that happened with Joel Colton he it wasn't anything that was you know based in his poetry he's famous because he had came to a tragic end and you know wow what a way to go and and like it's not about the work and yet it elevates the work although um maybe we're we're more familiar with this poem about him than his works yeah
0: yeah I think the poems pre fame, although in in our yeah, world, in yeah. the poetry world <laughs> Eileen Miles was never not but there's there is a mode. This is the Eileen Miles mode. Both of these poems are in it. Uh there are poems earlier and later that are doing other things, but these are these are really signature style poems. And I wonder what the relationship between that is and what June just said about about fame you know you're really good at doing something and you you need to work it out so both of these poems are meta poems because they're both thinking who the hell am i when am i going to die when is this poetry gig going to stop you know and why well, i should just run into the bathroom and look at myself <laughs> and, uh, what the fuck is going on um jess and then steve thoughts on any of this
3: can i return to the that's right i know <laughs> please you do said yeah yeah that, re- I, I did promise
0: that. we would get there yeah that's good <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, I think what what you alluded to as the sort of signature Eileen Miles mode, I kind of referenced it earlier, but to me, I think of it as a sort of, hello, come on in. This is my world. This is my poem. This is the page of my notebook. This is my spine. These are my words that I couldn't help but put there. And so that's right is a sort of statement that, it it encompasses all of that. It encompasses not just the content of the poem, but the practice that goes into the poem, the questioning of the practice that goes into the making of the poem. Um, and again, I would reiterate my earlier point that That's Right is not just about poetry, it's about like being queer and a gender, not normal person looking at yourself in a mirror you know, and saying, well, this is my world. This is what's right in my world. You know, my right is a queer right.
0: Well, we could talk a lot more about this, but I'd love for us to go one more time around and um, offer your final thoughts. Something you came all the way from the Hudson Valley to (laughs) say, but haven't had a chance to yet. So who wants to have
1: a final thought? Steve, you look like you have one. I think I do. I, I think I remembered what, I wanted to say about the first poem, and then mm-hmm. it slipped my mind. But um, there's something curious about running to a bathroom mirror when your nerve fails you, um, and looking in a mirror is—it's both the most reassur- can be the most reassuring and intimately reassuring thing because what's more familiar to your you than your face? At the same time, I think we've all had the experience of being totally and utterly alienated by it because our face is probably the only kind of thing of that scale that we can't observe directly we have to see it in the mirror and i just which is uh, a stand-in for identity yeah well we are
0: usually through the face right
1: yeah no exactly right i mean it's how other people read us how we present ourselves a poker face face. do we decide to be expressive or inexpressive are we hiding something or revealing it all of this plays out in this tiny you know few square inches of our face and i thought it was interesting that one When attempting to connect two things would go with one's face into the mirror and observe its double in image. And the two things are are now these two two Oh, Steve, that's
0: so fucking smart. Should I take a bow? (laughs) Nobody will notice except for us. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. That was a great final thought. Jess, your final thought?
3: I think I would just go back to something that I think I said about about connection, um, which is... That it is about sort of desire. It's it's an ordinary act. It's so simple, but it can happen at so many different scales, connecting. That is, and I just think it's fabulous that in this poem, we have what could be two tiny pieces pieces of of trash, essentially band aids used or or otherwise, being put together, and that's that's how miles defines god that's how miles defines the sacred vocation of 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 poetry because that's what they want to do and they do it
0: right and sometimes they write a poem in which that's the point yeah which is what we have here june thomas final thoughts
2: um i just maybe something that that jess has kind of awakened me to that um one of the things that really struck me, especially hearing the poems, was like this confidence, this brio, this like it's funny. It makes you like you, especially, especially writing, you know, a meta poem. And then you when you hear it, you're like, ah, like it just kind of fills you with, you know, yes, you did it kind of thing. Like it's a very weird reaction to a poem, I think. But I also think that in both poems, I, f- I feel this pride because... I know that as a queer writer and also especially like I am now looking at the the photo of Miles that's on the cover, the paperback edition of I Must Be Living Twice, they're sitting you know, very um, absolutely full face on, very, you know, it, this is what I would say would be, you know, prime butch stance, prime butch dress, v-neck t-shirt, plaid shirt, jeans, you know, some leather around the wrist, short hair, just looking full on into the mirror, into the camera, excuse me, and just like if there's a defiance, there's but it's like, you know, I see this. I, I'm rejecting what you see, some of it. I see this and it, I can't deny that it troubles me sometimes or that I, the world, I hear what the world thinks. I hear what the world says. But you know what? Forget about it because that's right. And then one other thing that I must just say, because it kind of – my obsession with it's it's, I guess I would just say that um, they, can, they Eileen Miles, can still, can still be working things out in a way that Joel Colton can't. Joel Colton, Colton's line is at an end. There's no more hesitation. There's no more f- working it all out. But Eileen Miles is still it's, – it's in.
0: It's really – yeah, that's a really s- aptly sad thought. Yeah, exactly. Uh my final thought has to do with writing um it's you know i i have read this poem many 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 times and sometimes i think it's about depression um sometimes i can't bear my thoughts sometimes i can't do anything it's the can't do anything in particular um the but that's okay is a real uh jess is working uh, on uh everyday
3: everyday or ordinary life ordinary life studies, studies. Or theory Yeah. There is such a thing.
0: There is such a thing. And thank goodness, because finally, I mean, finally, you're going to catch up with to what Eileen Miles and others, other poets have been doing all along, which is that, you know, poetry can be about the big things. But if I can't get up in the morning and of writing a poem about writing a poem about not being able to get up in the morning is my way to get myself to put my feet on the floor and stand up. But it's actually not we don't see the. Putting of the feet on the floor. What we see is that's okay, right? I got Band-Aid book. I'm going to throw book in there. God, that's right. It's a, a poetry becomes a consolation. Uh, it doesn't get rid of depression. It doesn't simply, in the old stupid theories about you know depressed people write great poem. You know, great artists, the screwed up artist thing. Not that at all. But a kind of everyday, ordinary, ordinary doings. And writing, some of us do, you know, is I don't know, get up in the morning because oh, I don't know, you're gonna have a really delicious breakfast burrito, or like you have some, you're gonna meet some really nice friend today for breakfast. So I'm gonna get up. I'm just gonna do this, you know. But for Eileen Miles, it's the prospect of writing that is the consolation. That's okay. I got a poem. It's called Writing. It's about this. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for several of us or all of us, if you're quick, to <laughs> gather a little something really poetically good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world, in the art world, in the film world, in the podcast world, in the world world. Who I'm looking around. I have one. You got one.
2: So I recently, from when I was young, I was totally into music. And then for decades, I just kind of, let it go and then i i wasn't listening to music at all and recently i did a i did a story i did a radio piece about uh, a singer and i got really like there was some like i just got excited and i really liked listening to their singing and i really like was looking for other things and i thought well i went to see her sing in an opera and then the next later that week i went to see her in a um, and one of the th- and it just like re- made me realize the singer is Jamie Barton she's a mezzo soprano um, but made me realize that when you go out into the world you will be you will have all these discoveries so I went to the opera and then and went to Carnegie Hall a few days later and there she was singing some Charles Ives songs and I was like wow I got I didn't know about these these are such weird kind of poems these art songs that are just based on strange sometimes they're sad sometimes they're ridiculous sometimes they're funny. Um, and then after Jamie Barton stopped singing, which was, she was amazing as always. And then um, this there was a guitar concerto that had just been written. And the person, Gigi was the guitarist and she was amazing. And it just, I'm kind of rambling because it just reminded me that sometimes something, you you, you take a liking to a particular singer or a particular performer and it gets you out of your, off your couch and you just discover amazing things. And in, my case, I was, it was doing a piece on Jamie Barn that made me interested in going to hear music again. And then it set off like a whole stream of discoveries and interests and makes me want to want to go out again.
0: That's paradise.
2: There it goes. you go. Yes, I gather
0: that. That's, that's the whole thing right there. I don't think any of us needs to gather any more <laughs> paradise because you're just you're going to float Spike away. And, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, Steve, can you follow that? I think I can. <laughs> I, you've helped me out because um, the first paradise I want to gather is that single malt you've left out on you the know, table. You know, that was one of my— Oh, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> But I don't, I've never had it. But I'm so just it's gonna... Taiwanese single malt,
0: and it's called Cavalan, and it's got a little bit of vanilla and a little bit of honey in it. Oh, my gosh. Well, you see,
1: your, your paradise is still intact because I was looking at the other one because <laughs> oh. you're enough of a lush that it takes two bottles to— <laughs> yeah. But the uh, tyrconnell I don't know how to pronounce it, looks like a kind of classic Irish whiskey. Yeah. And and but I'll gather a little more paradise if you give me one sec. Which is that no, you can do your usual Steve Metcalf thing, which is you know multiple 25. paradises. I'll right? keep it at two. What do
0: you guys call this section of the, the podcast? It's the uh, time when uh, we you endorse. should listen sometime. We're, I a listen good show. every week, but I can't remember because I usually
1: turn it off at that point. <laughs> oh, nice, it's uh their endorsements. Endorsements. Right. Um. So this is slightly duplic- duplicative. So if there are some people listening who listened to that podcast, I'm sorry, but um, it's still on my mind, which is. I waited way too long to finally read The Bell Jar. And oh, my gosh. What a tough experience that is. I had such a fixed so idea. Be a Plath we're talking about. Fixed idea in my head of who Plath is, and that extended to this book as well. And it's just an entirely different book from – uh, no doubt completely spurious preconceptions i had about her as a human being based on the few poems that i know in fact i i mean i love the book so far I, al you're not a fan or no i, I it's very impressive yeah i, I, I kind of like the book better than i like the poems sometimes so. I, I it really has captivated me in part because I, I i was expecting nothing i mean i really i had no sense of the actual book and when i opened it it was like a blast of mid century midtown heat coming off the concrete of Manhattan just hit mm-hmm. me in the face I mean it's just live, sensuous funny clever mm-hmm. um, it's it's i wouldn't say it's it's precise uh it's got an energy. Um, I, I'm not trying to dignify Sylvia Plath by connecting her to the work of a male author, but it does remind me it has some of the energy, more of the energy of Holden Caulfield than of Emily Dickinson in some respects. There's just a, a sass, a slang. It's not slanging exactly. She's not showing off or trying to be loose, but it just – it has a young a young person's energy coming out of the mid-century mm-hmm. of New York City, and it it just – Drove me back to a time and place that I was not expecting I, to be transported to, and I, I love it. I'm finished it, but I, know, I would psychologize you or psychoanalyze you a little bit. There, I do think <coughs>
0: that you are. You wish that was that's something you would have liked to have been part of uh, the mid '50s uh, steamy Manhattan. You are a Manhattanite, but this was a period you didn't get oh, to do that. Y- the youthful energy, naivete about culture, I and wish aspiring I had to I, be part of the scene. I'll Come make on, it. Steve. I'll make it.
1: I'll make it less specific but more indicting than that. Which is, I just wish I had been young when I was young. <laughs> yeah. It's not specific to having, because that's that's just false consciousness to say, had I been only ten or twenty years, you know, yeah. born well, twenty years earlier, I would have been part I of X, Y, or Z. And You like, finish the
0: therapy by saying, really, that that was that, that it's really about what you didn't get to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Which I wouldn't have done no matter when
0: I was born. (laughs) (laughs) That is your fate. Anymore? (laughs) <laughs> yes i go i have so
1: one more you should
0: see that. You, zach is smiling and saying, oh you man f- this is so out of control this is
1: gonna be so great till i get my is hands on this s- to s- edit it down to you'll nothing. never cut this you'll never cut this <laughs> part because Steve you Metchaff felt is gone you, you are so you gone will never i haven't touched the buyer's whiskey yet but you will never cut this part i didn't mean be- gone i mean he's gonna edit you out I, not this part because you felt you felt, you felt Attacked when I made a crack about meta poetry. I just want to say that uh, a central to my recent paradise is this podcast, which I finally listened to. I tend to not read the books that my friends write, the poems they write, the plays that I, I blow off my friends because I cherish them as my friends. It's a terrible thing, but I actually you were worried do do that, that, that if you listened to no, poem not at all. Talk, not, not like at all. Like it's just any that anymore. when I want Al I want Al I don't want some simulacrum. But it turns out this is an, it is an amazing podcast. Oh,
2: gosh. You're endorsing this do, podcast on this
0: podcast? That's
2: please amazing. Please do not
1: cut that out. <laughs> I really want it. To, because, I
0: mean, look, with, uh, yeah. Uh, so we, with Steve, <laughs> I've with Steve you. <laughs> and June in the room, you you know, you, you people have really been significantly responsible for what podcast podcasting of a certain kind has become, you know. Podcasting as it's sort of succeeding from radio and this really important mode that has created an intimacy that uh, radio just never had. And partly it's that oftentimes it's right in our ears because of uh, headphones and, and Air, AirPods and so forth. But having the two of you in the room doing this podcast, which goes back to 2007, so it's not you know so much later, is a great honor. Cut that! <laughs>
3: <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs>
0: there, keep that, <laughs> Jess. I'm sorry. No, this Jess, uh, gather this, some paradise and have it not have anything wonderful. to do with these people who are too involved in each other. Well,
3: I, I mean, I was going to say that. I mean, I can I can relate to that to that desire for the sort of mid century um, energy um, in Plath. Although I would say, if I could transport myself back to an imagined. Mid-century, it would maybe be like Highsmiths, Price of Salt.
0: I think June would want to be in on that
3: podcast. Yeah, it's so weird. Anyway, that's a whole other story. I think um, the paradise that I have gathered of late, um, uh, an unusual recommendation coming from me because I don't watch a lot of television. But just last night, I started watching... Um,
0: Wait, you're in a room with June Thomas, and you <laughs> are saying you don't watch a lot of television.
3: You know, I don't watch much anymore. So I, no, that's not true. I, I, you know, I got to. I got so much. I got to that... be truthful here. Um, <laughs> but I, I watched the first three episodes of a show, a Showtime series called "On Becoming a God in Central oh. Florida." Kirsten Dunst stars in this series, and she uh, produced it, I believe um and it's a it's it's a dark comedy about essentially pyramid schemes or what is called i guess that's a that's the uh, direct MLM. retail yes yes Market yes yeah. yes yeah i'm i'm not familiar with all the lingo but it's basically um about <laughs> Late capitalist normative fantasies of <laughs> of having a good life. It takes place in the early nineties, so a different sort of period um, moment. But I was kind of blown away by it. Um, I was blown away by its depth for a sort of for a show that's trying to be of many different moments. Um, it it was
2: it was deep. I was enjoying wondering what you were going, what it was going to be. I was I like know. three episodes
0: of it. Now. Could it be the crown? Could it be the... oh. Say the name of the show again.
3: On Becoming a God in Central Florida.
0: Okay. And you're saying you haven't been watching.
2: No. Actually, I watched it because we talked about it on Culture Gap. We did, yeah. Oh.
3: Well, there you go. Late to the party, as
2: always. Thank Mm -hmm.
0: you. I'm going to gather some paradise. I think I have two because Steve took the single malt away from me, although we're all going to have it in a few minutes. Um, After this conversation, which... The after and the before and the during is meaningless because this will come out a few months from now. And what I'm about to say is going to be immediately available. Um, There's going to be a conversation uh, with Stephen June here at the Kelly Writers House in Philadelphia about podcasting. Plus, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be about a lot of things. And um, by the time you hear this podcast, you can go to the Kelly Writers House website. Uh, or you can simply uh, use your favorite search engine and uh, type in Kelly Writer's House, I want to say June Thomas podcasting, and you will get <laughs> – or Stephen Medcalf podcasting. And, what you and you will get uh, you will get probably a Writer's House calendar entry with a link to YouTube or you'll go right to YouTube and you'll be able to watch what I am guessing is going to be a really fabulous session. Thank you in advance. Um, And the second thing, uh, second piece of paradise, um, Steve has less lately referred to his book in progress um, and he's already (laughs) – and that's because he's been, you know, agonizing his way toward the end of it. But uh, it's never been mentioned on this – I don't think it's been mentioned in your previous appearance on this podcast. So I, I really want people to know that Steve's got something really important coming along. And I want to invite him to take. Do you have a an elevator pitch
1: length version of what this book I mean, I has become now? Say something very quickly, please. <laughs> um, I, I mean, we're all, you know, anybody with a brain right now, either formally or informally, is trying to write a history of the present. I mean, we're trying to reverse engineer from this horrible oxymoron known as President Trump, right? Like, how did we end up with this self canceling locution that seems to you know, sort of destroy the last hopes for the republic. I mean, and um, I just, uh, I didn't think he was going to win. Of course, I didn't set out to write this book thinking such a thing would come to pass. But I am writing a book about the 80s and specifically about what I think of as really a four to six year period where the blueprint for the subsequent era, which has been Called neoliberalism. I take I have some issue with that term. I mean, I'm I'm really not writing a backstory of of neoliberalism, but but I'm interested in that term. I'm interested in the market paradigm. I'm interested in the vulgar personality type, um, and the kind of blood and guts of where this very very sterile abstraction of the free market met up with how you know America enacted itself. In this period, roughly 1979 to roughly 1984, 1985, and it, I think, implicit in that is is all the crap that came after. And I, and you're
0: not shying away from uh, theory. You're not shying away from large historical claims. And I th- just think it's great. And I guess really, the gathering paradise, uh, the the paradise I want to gather here is you. Um, when when you know I'm. St- Steeped and stuck inside of the Academy, the writer, Kelly Writer's House allows me to, to get to the fertile edges of uh, the, you know, the the edges of where the Academy ends and uh, the community, the real community begins. But listening to your podcast long before I knew you, um, I, I regained faith in there could be a uh, – sorry for to use the phrase public intellectual. I think I don't want to use that phrase, but you know, a non-academic voice that cares very much about the things that at its best the academy cares about, preserving thought and the uh, important pacing and time and length of thinking something through, which you manage to do in a podcast often enough, which is really not that easy to do, um, and hearing that voice and being – Having revived in me a sense that I, too, could say things that are rigorous and difficult and complex but can reach can reach an audience. And I haven't done it as successfully as you have uh, in the podcasting world. But this book, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. He's rolling his eyes because he's worried I mean, I'm this, making it. This right. I'm looking around for it.
4: <laughs> no, I just think this
0: book is going to do exactly what we all hope uh, we need to do it's somewhere from you know really long form re- reported journalism, to mucking around in libraries, to ha- being a refugee from the academy, and 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 saying something that's really important and not worrying about that you won't get tenure because of it. So, Well, that's all of the looking at ourselves in the bathroom mirror we have (laughs) time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Steve Metcalf, Jess Schellenberger, and June Thomas, and to Poem Talk's patient super patient enduring <laughs> director and engineer Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor the same amazing patient Zach Cardner, and a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk this is Al Philrease and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk